Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one in the seat underneath you or under your neighbor's seat. Don't make it weird, uh, but you can grab one of those and use it as well. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to catch up on a couple things. Uh, one, we have a marriage event coming up, and uh, this is going to be held out at Don and Jody's barn out at Lamb Farms. And uh, this event is for married couples uh, to come. We just got done preaching for uh, four weeks on relationships, and two of those weeks were on marriage specifically. And so we're going to have this event. You can come out, and uh, we're bringing in some teaching, and it'll be just a fun evening um, out there at the barn. But you need to register. So a couple things to know about this. It's open to the first 50 couples that register. um, And we need your email address to do that. So if you have never filled out a Connect card, it's a good day to do that. And you put your email address on there, and we'll get you uh, the registration link emailed out in the first 50 couples. If you don't make that first 50 couple list, we're going to do another one. So it's okay. We'll do another one in the spring, and uh, you'll be able to catch up on that one. And there is no child care for this event. So you will need to find child care um, for this event, uh, and we hope to see you there. So you can get signed up. Uh, the link will go out early this next week uh, for you to get registered. Also, uh, next Sunday is our congregational meeting. Uh, We are an elder-led church here at New Hope. Uh, We are not a part of a denomination. Uh, We don't have a regional body that oversees the church. Uh, The congregation chooses the elders. The elders lead the the church. And the elders have proposed an expansion plan for our building to the congregation in previous uh, congregational meetings and a few different Q&A sessions. That culminates this next Sunday, a week from today, in the congregation voting uh, to move forward or not to move forward. And we want to hear from everybody. And so if you are a member of New Hope, we're asking you to come. But we're also asking those who are not members uh, to also participate. We want to hear from you. So you'll fill out a vote card too, but you'll just indicate you're not a member. And the votes that go toward making the decision will be counted just among the members. But we do want to hear the input of everyone who's a part of our congregation um, before we move forward. The elders have percentages kind of laid out. If we're within a certain threshold, we move forward. If not, we don't. And that's really dependent on uh, the turnout to this meeting. So next Sunday, we're going to have that meeting right after third service. Originally, it was for 5 p.m. Maybe you saw that advertised. We realized the Colts play at 4.30. Uh, Probably not wise to do a congregational meeting uh, at 5 o'clock. So uh, we will do uh, that right after third service next Sunday uh, and ask that everyone who wants to participate, please be here uh, to participate in that. Let's pray, and we will jump in. Father, we thank you. Uh, so much for this church family. Um, God, I just love what you're doing in the lives of the people that are here. Even many of our members who are currently suffering, going through difficulty, they just live this testimony of faithfulness that inspires us to look to you for our strength. And so this morning, as we turn to your word, uh, would you continue to kindle that fire in each of us to turn to you to be our strength? We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm fairly certain that most of us in the room have seen the movie, Remember the Titans. Um, If not, uh, it's a movie uh, where Denzel Washington plays the lead role of Coach Herman Boone, and he is tasked with leading a high school football team and given the uh, really incredible task of not losing a football game. And what he's up against is a racially divided culture and a racially divided football team. And so before he's able to take this team and fulfill the task that was given to him to win football games and not to lose a football game, he has to first help them overcome this perceived enemy that they see in one another. He has to help them get past this divide if they're ever going to win a game. 
So how's he do that? That's the, that builds the tension up. How's he going to be able to break through this hatred that they have for one another to help this team achieve more? And so there's this scene where he wakes them up. They're at a preseason training camp, and he has a bullhorn, and he wakes everybody up in the middle of what feels like the middle of the night. It's the early morning hours, and everybody realizes this is just a test for us for endurance. And so they get up, and they're going to go on this nice jog to test their endurance, only the jog turns into a long run. And by the end of the run, they arrive somewhere where they finally stop, and they're trying to catch their breath, and they're sweating like crazy, and they've got no energy left. And they look up, and they see their coach. Here's a picture of that scene. And he's staring off into the field, looking off at where they are, when finally he turns around and begins to speak to them after they're sitting there wondering what in the world is going on. And he says, do you know where we are? You know where we're standing right now. This is where they fought the battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men, 50,000 boys died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're fighting still today among ourselves. You listen up and take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now, we too will be destroyed just like they were. It's a powerful scene. It becomes this breakthrough moment where they begin to see what he wanted them to see. And what he wanted them to see was your enemy is not one another. You're not fighting against other people. There's a bigger enemy who's trying to deceive you here. And you need to break through that. And I don't know about you, but when all it takes is a look around our culture today, and many of us in our homes and in the culture at large, at work, and you begin to see, man, we're fighting very similar battles. We just turn other people into enemies so quickly. And maybe you're like me, maybe not, but maybe you feel like I feel, exhausted with the intense, defensive, hateful tone that has taken place in our culture. It gets frustrating. An entitlement type of tone that somehow anyone or anything that gets in the way of me and my happiness and what I desire is immediately my enemy to be fought in a battle till the death. I will take you out if you stand in the way of my goals and my visions. And we do it with our words. We do it with our tone. We do it physically. We see it all over the culture. This past week, I flew down to Florida to meet up with Matt Thompson, our student minister, as he, was, um, he was, had the opportunity to sing the national anthem at the Miami Dolphins football game. And as a lifelong Dolphins fan, he invited me to come along. And so I got to go with him, and we flew down there. It was a really incredible experience. I thought, let me figure out a way to make fun of him, as he and Ben seemed to really relish that when they preach, uh, putting me up on the screen. But I'm not going to do it because he rocked it. There's really nothing to make fun of. He did a great job. It was really, really good. And while we're flying down there, uh, I flew separate from them. I was going to go visit my brother who lives in Florida. And I have a friend who's a pilot, so he got me a standby ticket. If you've ever flown standby, you know, while it can be frustrating, and it is a blessing to be able to get on a plane. And so you, but you have to, when you get to the gate, you have to check in with the gate agent before boarding begins to let them know that you're there so that they don't overlook the fact that they have a standby flyer. And so I show up, and I'm getting in line. For my second flight, I got on the flight from Indy. We have this layover, and I have to go check in with the gate agent, and I check in, and there's this man in front of me who's going first, and he is um, middle-aged, has a college-aged son, and his wife standing next to him, and he is berating this 20-year-old young gate agent. I mean, the language was intense, dropping F-bombs. It was just horrible. Like, what is going on? And I'm kind of taken aback by that, like standing behind them, going next, 
and he just lays into her and he's demanding a better seat and he's demanding a free ticket. And he's just, this is, I deserve to get me your manager. And he's just screaming. People start closing in like someone's going to have to stop something. And finally he finishes and he's done. But while he's going, the first thought that came into my head, is this is your preacher. <sighs> Dude, you're flying coach from New Jersey on Spirit Airlines. <laughs> like you're not that important. Now, it's funny, but then immediately what came to my mind was, I just did the same thing he's doing. I just did it in my head quietly. Instantly turned him into my enemy. Instantly, because of what he was doing, he became my enemy in my head. And right away, and while comical, it revealed something. Something bigger that's going on. I've been deceived into thinking this guy is somehow my enemy that I need to display some sort of a frustration, even hatred toward. And the same way he was just doing it to her that I didn't approve of, it was okay that I did it toward him. See, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be right all the time. Nobody wants to just take the position of serving and caring, and nobody really wants to take a look at who the real enemy is in these different situations. We spend all kinds of money on political campaigns that are aimed at just hatred towards other people. We spend countless hours on social media looking at envying and creating discord with other people, let alone the amount of time we spend slandering and gossiping other people's reputations simply to feel better about ourselves. Because somehow they got in the way of the way I see myself or they got in the way, and all of a sudden they're my enemy. And instantly we make them an enemy. About four weeks ago in our series in the book of Ephesians that we've been in this entire year, we transitioned to some practical teaching that Paul does in Ephesians 5. He begins to talk about what it looks like for Christians to have relationship with other human beings. Particularly, he talked about marriage and parenting and then all these other relationships, whether in work and people that have authority over you. And what he's doing is he's making this incredible point that when you became a Christian, when you submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus, you submitted all of your life to the lordship of Jesus. Every single part of you is baptized into Christ, not just the selective pieces, which means even the way you think and approach other people. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that when he became a new creation, he used to see everything this way, but becoming a Christian, he got this new set of lenses, and now everything looks different. Every single interaction has been changed, and Paul brings that to the church in Ephesus and begins to tell them, your marriage the way that you relate to one another in a marriage relationship and in a parenting relationship and in every other relationship that you encounter with other flesh and blood human beings is to look different than the way the world approaches those same relationships. It has to look different because the tendency that we have is to not do that. It's to kind of blend in. It's to look at, hey, is your marriage any different because of Jesus? Is your relationships, your friendships, the approach that you take to these relationships, is it really any different? Has Jesus really made a difference in the way you relate to other human beings? Has he really impacted that or not? And our tendency is to turn away from that instinctively in our sin, creating enemies out of other people. And so Paul now as he's talked about these relationships, is going to begin to kind of shift into a little bit of a teaching that's to set our minds on who our real enemy is. So we're going to break this into a couple pieces over the next couple weeks. Today, we're going to learn who is our enemy. Who's our real enemy? Next week, we'll look at how do we engage in battle with that enemy, but you've got to know who your enemy is before you engage in any kind of a battle with your enemy. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10. 
Finally, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The language Paul uses to our modern Western minds can be a pretty confusing right? This idea of spiritual authority and a spiritual realm and spiritual forces. We don't like to think about those things. As a matter of fact, if you're not a part of the church, if you didn't grow up in the church and you didn't like that kind of language, it's just kind of like watching the sci-fi channel. It just doesn't seem to fit right with your perception, the way you view and see reality. But Paul is trying to get us to see a different view of reality, As Christians, we get to see a part of reality, this unseen part, and we have to come to understand it. Now, in my time in the church, I've learned a few things about this type of a conversation. One, we we dive too far into it, it loses people. Number two, some people get way too excited about this stuff. Oh man, I just want to talk, everything is spiritual warfare, everything's a battle, everything is this, everything, right? Did you, you cooked my waffle the wrong way, spiritual battle. Like, it's like, whoa, like everything is not a spiritual warfare situation. And yet there's this other group of people that are like, I don't want anything to do with it. It's like that dark house at the end of a street that you don't like walking down. It's like, hey, we'll go just so far, let's turn around and head back home. I don't want to go there. That's the house we don't visit when we're trick-or-treating, right? Everybody just stay away. It's kind of creepy. The grass has grown up. Nobody wants to go near it. That's spiritual conversations for some people in the church. And C.S. Lewis captured this well. He said this, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So just say, I'm going to ignore this. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. See, we can get way too into this. So how do you do it? How do you step back and have a balanced approach to it and just say, hey, I just kind of want to understand what is going on here. That's the hope. So we're going to kind of take a step back and just patiently walk through these three verses where Paul has got a, a goal. He wants them to understand who their real enemy is so they stop naturally making real enemies out of one another. So he starts out. He says, finally, that's a better translation of that word. You might say, therefore, or really, henceforth. So moving forward. Now that we understand that our relationship should look different, moving forward, here's how we move forward in these relationships. And he says, you start with being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord. Notice he does not say, be strong. You've got this. Dig deep. You can do it. You've been through so much already. Your past experiences have given you some sort of a special strength that you can overcome this. He doesn't say based on your intellect. You're an intelligent, strong person. So based on the strength of your mind, you can overcome this situation. Just meditate on something positive long enough and it'll go well. He does not say based on your gifts. You have these strong gifts in you. You're able to overcome this obstacle. No big deal. Just rely on those natural gifts that you have. He doesn't say any of that. He starts where the Bible started. Right off the bat, God has to begin to instruct his people in their battle with sin to be strong in his strength and not their own. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength, not yours. In a way, he's humbling them. In a way, he's saying, no matter how smart you are, no matter how many experiences you've had in life, no matter how much you think you know how this thing works, no matter how well you think you're equipped to fight this battle against this real enemy that you have, you don't have what it takes. You need his strength 
and all through the pages of Scripture. Here's a few of my favorite examples. First Chronicles 28, 20, King David's giving his son Solomon advice for leadership. You want to lead a life that's meaningful. You want to see this project of the temple through. Here's what he says. David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work of service of the temple of the Lord is finished. Remember who's with you, Solomon. Fast forward to the end of David's life. He's on his deathbed, and he gives his son more wisdom. He he is imploring his son with this wisdom. When David's time to die was near, he told his son Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth, so be strong. Show yourself to be a man. Do what the Lord your God tells you. Walk in his ways, not yours. Keep all of his laws and his word by what is written in the law of Moses. And when you do, do well, you will do well in all that you do and in every place that you go. Rallying the people of God, he says in 2 Samuel chapter 10, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and for the cities of God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. This is his strength and perhaps the one that came to your mind when I started going down this list, perhaps the one that's hanging on something in your house somewhere, perhaps the one that you have your children memorize, like we had our children memorize, is given to Joshua as he's getting ready to take the lead of God's people. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You see, Paul is encouraging them in the same way the Bible has always encouraged them. Throughout the Old Testament, while the words spiritual warfare or spiritual battle don't appear in the pages of the Old Testament, boy, it's there. You see over and over again, God's people are called to go into battle against false gods and enemies whose only goal is to destroy their people. Fast forward to your New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene, and it's apparent right away he's engaging in spiritual battle, speaking directly to demons, speaking forcefully to demons to stand down, speaking firmly to them, warning his followers of the deceptive schemes of their real enemy. See, throughout the Bible, God has reminded his people over and over again, you must be aware of who your real enemy is, and it's not one another. It's not other human beings. There's another enemy who is far stronger than that, whose goal is to deceive and to destroy you. And you have to be aware of that. Why? Because he knew what our tendency is to do. When I'm up against something that seems like it's so difficult, our natural tendency is to go to something that seems a little more achievable and create an enemy out of that so that I feel like I'm in control, so that I feel like I can win, so that I feel like I've got what it takes to engage in that battle. I'll choose that battle over here instead of this giant big battle that's in front of me that just feels like I can't win. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but I feel like that looking at the culture sometimes. You step back and you think, how in the world are we going to make a dent in such a godless world that seems to hate our Lord? And you feel overwhelmed at times, and that's exactly how you should feel because you don't have what it takes. And you need to remember the enemy you're up against. And the only way for you to engage with that enemy is with the strength that you can't muster up in and of yourself. And the enemy's goal is to deceive you into thinking that you can. He's an I monster. He's a me monster. That's who he is. I can, I can. And it started in the beginning. Look at verse 11. It says you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes. So he's a schemer. So his number one objective is to deceive you. And here's the thing. The moment you feel you're not being deceived, you're probably being deceived. Like it's this catchy, difficult thing for us. Like, oh, no, he doesn't have me. Well, maybe, maybe. Why don't we examine that a little bit closer? 
His number one objective is to deceive you. Why? Because he wants everything for himself. Isaiah chapter 14 describes the fall of Satan, who's an angel. He's not God. He's not omnipresent. He can't be in multiple places at once. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's a created being. And Isaiah 14 gives us just a glimpse into this speech, this motivation that he has where he says, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. Five times in that passage in Isaiah, Satan talks about, I will, I will, me, 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 I, I, I. Because all he wants is all the glory for himself. That's his heart. And that's what he wants to deceive you into doing for yourself. He wants you to be deceived into thinking that you have what it takes and you can do it and you're the best and this enemy is nothing on you and you're strong enough and powerful enough and your experiences have given you everything that you need. He wants you to think that the source of your power is all you and that you can do it all on your own. There's a preacher came up with a list in the, uh, he pulled from the New Testament that I really found helpful and trying to understand exactly how Satan works in our world to deceive. This list won't appear on the screen, so if you'd like to take notes, go ahead and get ready. I'll just give you the references, and if you miss it, just come talk to me. I'll give it to you. But it's this list from, uh, from another preacher, and he just said, here's the way in the New Testament that I've found that Satan is a schemer, a deceiver. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus directly states that the devil is the father of all lies. So he is the father of all lies. 1 John 3.10 calls him the father of hatred and murder. Don't let our desensitized American ears lose sight of the, like the power of these words. Okay? He is literally saying he's the father of hatred and murder. 1 Timothy 4, he spins out false doctrine and corrupts truth. It's another way he deceives God's people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says that he imitates religious authorities, even giving them the ability to imitate signs and wisdom. Signs and wonders, deceiving people into thinking they're better than they are. In the Gospels, we see him taking over people's bodies to the point that it drives them insane. Genesis 3 calls him the most deceitful creature of all the creatures that was created. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 says he tempts the saints specifically with illicit sex. So sexual temptations. You would draw that out to pornography nowadays. He wants you engulfed and addicted to pornography so that it twists and turns your mind and your brain. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that he turns unresolved anger into bitterness in the hearts of God's people. So what he wants is for you to not be a forgiving person, so bitterness takes root and continues to divide you among the people that you love and care about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that he puts obstacles in the way of God's missionaries, literally trying to stop the work from spreading around the world. Romans 16 tells us that he sows discord and division over doctrine and leadership among God's people, trying to get them to divide from the leadership that God has put over their church by questioning every single thing to the point where even when there's transparency, it's disbelieved. In Matthew chapter 4, he tempts us with the power and makes us question God's love for us and our identity in him. It's fascinating to me. Most people say that there were three temptations that Jesus experienced when he was tempted by the enemy in the desert, but there's four. There's the three that are explicit in the text, but there's this question that Satan starts the whole thing off with when he asks Jesus, if you really are the son. Getting him to question that identity that just one chapter before God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. But Satan just kind of schemes. He just comes in there and wants to sow a little bit of doubt. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says he blinds the mind of unbelievers, meaning people that aren't Christians and they're living in the darkness, spiritual darkness, all he wants to do is keep that dark. And he will work all around you to keep you from seeing the truth. 
Ephesians 2 tells him unbelievers, he keeps unbelievers attracted to their sins and even ensnares them so that they get addicted to them. 1 Thessalonians 3, he attacks faith wherever he finds it. 1 Timothy 3, he makes Christian leaders puff up with pride so that they'll fall. And have we not seen that in our culture? Just puff up the pride. Just think more of yourself so that the fall is bigger and more painful. He brings to the minds of unbelievers in 2 Timothy chapter 2 the pride and the faults of other Christian leaders so that they won't take the gospel seriously. Satan is a schemer. And I would say that if we were to sit down and talk, you would be able to, with vivid detail, tell me ways that you have felt what he's doing around you, influencing the relationships in your life causing you to turn somebody created in his image into your enemy, all because you've been deceived into thinking that's what you're really up against when really there's a bigger enemy who's attacking you. And Jesus warned us this was his goal. He doesn't come out and do it. He's very crafty. He's very sneaky. He likes to work in ways that you might not see him coming. In John 10, 10, he describes him as a thief. A thief doesn't knock on your front door. Like, hey, I'm here. Can I just take some stuff? He doesn't. That's not how it works. A thief is coming when you don't expect him to come. And he says the goal of this thief is to steal, kill, and destroy. Think about those words. He wants to steal any kind of joy and good from your life. That's the enemy you're up against. That's a very real enemy. He wants to steal everything from your life. He wants to kill. He wants to kill anything going on that's good toward God in your life. He wants to destroy you. In other words, I want you to hear this. Satan hates you. Your enemy hates you because he hates the God that you serve. He hates the God that you serve so much that when you get closer to God, his hatred for you grows. You have a very real enemy. Canadian psychiatrist John White puts it this way. I like this. This won't be on the screen, uh, but here's, here's how he describes this. He says, Satan's supreme objective is to hurt Christ and hurt Christ's cause. You personally have no real interest to him. It's only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in his eyes. Before you became a Christian, he was mainly interested in blinding you to the truth of Christ or perhaps in seducing you further into his terrain. His number one goal was to just keep you in the darkness. But this was not because of your personal importance to him. He was only using you to get back at God. He will scheme and deceive and move in your life in ways that will blind you to the truth if you're not fully aware of who he is and what he's doing. And Paul then shifts and says, now you got to understand, that's your enemy. Your enemy is not flesh and blood people. That's not who you're up against. That's not who we're battling. It might be some of the bad ideas that they're throwing out there. It might be some of the worldviews that they're pushing out in front, but that's not them. You're not fighting against another person. You're fighting against an ideology and a worldview that's deceiving people and keeping them in the dark. He says you're up against rulers and authorities. There in verse 12, many theologians have argued about, okay, what does this rulers and powers and authorities mean? Does it mean that there's actually physically a a rule of Satan on the physical earth, and maybe they're referring to Caesar at the time and how he's being used by the enemy to purport evil in the physical world? Or is there this spiritual realm that we can't see where Satan's kind of moving and working and causing all kinds of trouble? And the answer to that, as best I can tell, is yes. Yes. Physically, he's moving in the world and influencing people greatly to do very evil, bad things. They create a lot of pain and the ripple effect of that in our world. But there's a spiritual realm where he's working too and spiritually trying to corrupt and kill as well. Jesus seems to confirm this when he's tempted by him in the desert. 
If you, know, if you remember that final temptation that Jesus has, Satan takes him to the top of the mountain and he says, you see all the world, you see the powers and the kingdoms of the world, Jesus? If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you these. And Jesus' response is interesting. He responds by saying no, and he resists the temptation. But what he doesn't do is say, Satan, you don't have the power to offer me that. He doesn't question the fact that Satan can make that offer while he's ruling. He can make him that offer. Just bow down to me. And here's the other thing about Satan's temptation. Jesus, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth. I'll let you rule all the kingdoms of this. And my plan doesn't come with a cross. Because we both know where you're headed, Jesus. And you won't have to hang on that cross to have what I'm offering you. The temptation was real and strong. And he resists it and he pulls away. Now understand Satan's rule, his authority, it's limited. It's limited. It's a limited authority. It's only given, he only has authority because God has given him the ability to rule and reign right now for a temporary time. He could not have that if God wasn't tolerating it. I like the way one preacher said it. He described it this way. He said, Satan is the ruler and the power behind this world. He's the dominating influence in our world. The world governments are his governments. Wall Street is his street. Entertainment is his entertainment. Educational systems are his educational systems. And if you want to succeed there, if that's the goal of your life, to have ultimate success in one of those realms, he's going to bombard you with enticement to play by his rules. If you don't know your enemy, your enemy's going to win. So you're like, man, this is intense. Welcome to New Hope. Glad it's your first Sunday. Like, <laughs> it's intense. It's a lot. But here's the goal of today. And here's what Paul's goal was. You have relationships all around you that should look different because of the impact Jesus has made. But you have an enemy who does not want that to happen. And he wants to influence those relationships so that you make enemies out of other people and you miss what he's trying to do all around you. And we have to be aware of it. So let me kind of get ready to close up this way. Let me give you three things for just for today. The first thing is this. We need to know our enemy. Because of this, if you don't recognize and understand the darkness that is surrounding us all around, the darkness that you're up against, then you'll never appreciate fully the light. You'll never fully appreciate what God has done for you in Jesus and how you're supposed to shine that light into that darkness. The second thing would be this. People are not our enemies. As a part of the Colson Fellowship, um, and uh, John Stone Street's the president of the Colson Fellows, um, uh, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and he has this motto that he would say throughout the program that I found very helpful. He said, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims, meaning we're going after ideas, not people, right? And so we look at ideas. If they're good ideas, we support them. We get behind them because they help people. If they're bad ideas, they're going to create victims and cause harm, and we need to go after those bad ideas, with the truth of the gospel, and apply it to those bad ideas to help people. Now, this is the thought that went through my head standing at the gate at the airport last week. Instantly, I started thinking these negative things about this guy. Didn't say them out loud, so I think I can still have my job. So I was standing, <laughs> standing behind him, and I didn't say anything out loud, but I was thinking it, and then I thought, oh, man, I turned him into my enemy when really it's just somewhere along the line this guy was deceived into thinking that behaving this way is going to get you what you want. It's the bad idea of believing that this type of behavior gets you what you want that I need to go after, and that's what I would want to correct, not this other human being. Like, I don't need to demonize the human being. Correct his thinking, help him see the truth, but don't turn him into my enemy. My enemy has deceived him, and in that moment was deceiving me. Third thing is this. We need to know how to fight. And next week, we're going to look at what it means to put on the full armor of God. 
And we'll look at those pieces of the armor and what it really means to engage in that battle. But here's what I want to tell you. Before we engage with the armor on in that battle, Paul's given us the first part of the fight already in our text. It's an often overlooked part or underappreciated part of this battle. When you're in a spiritual battle, you need to understand who's fighting with you and who's fighting for you. The Apostle Paul says, you fight in his strength, not in your own, meaning he's going to be with you every single time you're up against something that seems insurmountable. It seems like it's just an attack. It seems like it's overwhelming. The number one thing to remember is that you're not doing that alone. You're never by yourself. He never leaves you off in the darkness all alone to fight these battles by yourself, telling you you better earn your way. No, he says, I am with you over and over again in the text. I am with you. I'm fighting with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to stand. I'm with you. That's the source of comfort before we put the armor on and begin to engage in the battle. Think of it this way. As many of you have probably experienced, we've experienced with our kids, there's these nights where they have really difficult nights. Middle of the night, it's dark. They get scared. They come running in. My tendency is to tell them to be tough. Like, just come on, get tough. Let's go. Get through this. You can do it. And then go lay down. Like, go so I can sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's the tendency, right? And you want to kind of tell them, like, you can do this. You can be strong. But sometimes they're just truly scared. And my tendency oftentimes gets me to say, hey, just go lay down and get through it. We'll talk about it in the morning. But what about right there in the middle of the night? What if they feel that they're up against something they can't overcome? What if instead of me telling them, go back to bed, what if I stop and I say, hey, why don't we pray about this? Because I need to remind you of something. You're not alone. You're not alone. He's with you. And it might feel scary, and it might feel overwhelming, and it might feel like you can't get through this night of darkness, but he's with you the whole time. And I tell him, hey, someone stronger than your daddy has got your back. I mean, I could help you, but boy, he can help you more than me. And he's with you the whole night. And then you pray with him, and you ask God to remind him of his presence, and then you help them go back to sleep. That's the approach that God takes. Not get over it, get tough, get stronger. You can do this. He says, no, I'm with you all the way. He calls us to be overcomers, but he says, I'll help you do it. I'll go with you. Reminded of the words he gave to the church in Ephesus, Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 2. When he tells them to be overcomers, he says, to the one who overcomes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. He wants us to engage in these battles, but he's reminding us that we never go alone. The first step to engaging in any spiritual battle that you're up against is remembering who's going with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder. God, I'm oftentimes just drawn to wanting to talk through the armor of God and all the different things that you've supplied us with, and I'm so grateful for them. But God, I sometimes overlook the most important truth that this battle that we're in is one that we're not in alone, that you're with us every single step of the way. We need that reminder today. We need to know who our enemy is, that he's real and he, destroy, he wants to destroy us, kill us, steal everything good from our lives. May we, as a group of followers of Jesus, apprentices, disciples of Jesus, stop underestimating the darkness of our enemy. Stop being comfortable with a dim light in a dark room and instead allow that light to shine bright 
in the darkness because we understand the darkness. But we also understand who's the source of our strength and that light. God, help us move forward. Help us to be overcomers so that we can eat at the tree of life in your paradise. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name.